I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Lee Honeywell. After helping build security capabilities at some of the most innovative technology companies of the last decade, including Slack, Microsoft, and Heroku, Lee set her sights on building a safer internet. She took a significant pay cut to work at the ACLU for a year-long fellowship, and she then set off on her own. She launched Tall Poppy with a $1 million seed round to help prevent and respond to online harassment and targeted personal hacks. While some of you may wonder about the distinction between cybersecurity and harassment, Lee does a great job touching on the intersection between the two in our conversation. And while many founders talk about making the world a better place, I got the sense from our conversation that Lee really lives and breathes that idea, and I think you'll find the same. Before we get into the conversation, a quick note from our sponsor, Blue Ventures. This year's upcoming Blue Cyber Summit in the DC area focuses on reconnecting the early to mid-stage investing and startup community. Day one includes the first Cyber Tacos event in over two years, and day two is geared around networking, meeting startups, watching the pitch competition, and teeing off at Digital Top Golf. It will be a great way to see a lot of new and familiar faces in an exciting atmosphere. I will personally be there hosting the Secure Ventures soundstage, so stop by and say hi to one of your top 10 favorite podcast hosts. The event is coming up next week, May 10th and 11th, and tickets are available for virtual and in-person attendees. Our listeners get 40% off with the code SECUREVENTURES22. You can find more details about the event on the website at bluecybersummit.com, and there's a link included in the description. With that, let's get to the episode. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. I've really been looking forward to this. Yeah, no, I'm excited to, to hear the story here. So, I mean, take me back to the, the start of your career. You studied computer science, and then you went into a technology applications specialist role <laughs> at Bell. Oh, How man. did you actually so- end up in security? It's actually one of my favorite one of my favorite stories. I um I actually dropped out of a computer science degree at the University mm. of Toronto. Um, I was I was really struggling academically. Um, I you know had had been a smart kid in high school and then just really sort of hit the wall in university. Sure. Um, had a lot of trouble concentrating. It would later turn out that I have ADHD, but I didn't know that at the time. But <laughs> I dropped out of university and through someone that I knew through the local twenty six hundred meetup. Uh, I got an internship at Bell Canada. Um, so this is 2005, early days of voice or IP systems. Um, and we were we were this sort of skunk works team within the sort of old school phone company, building out these newfangled voice over IP phone systems. Um, and it's 2005, people are just starting to think about voice over IP security as well. Um, we'd seen a lot of really interesting breaches at the time focused on toll fraud. So you, mm. you break into somebody's big PBX system and then you call a bunch of premium rate numbers and there's like some billing scamming on the back end. But basically these PBXs, including voice over IP PBXs, were being targeted um, as part of these toll fraud schemes. So that was one of the things that really sort of like got me excited about cybersecurity is seeing like, oh, this totally normal system that's like really mundane. How does it get misused for like shenanigans and like financial crimes? Interesting. Yeah, that's a, a very unique introduction into the kind of broader concept of security, right? Where it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. hacking a computer, but just the potential for technology as a whole to be misused. And then obviously yeah. kind of segueing that into uh, the broader cybersecurity ecosystem. So 
I mean, the next experience that you had that I, I just found kind of interesting, right, was from 2006 to 2011, you were working as an independent consultant while you were also working full time. What did that actually look like? How did that come together? Oh, man, I think that's one of those sort of like funny resume things of I had, you know, I did sort of side gigs and yeah. consulting. Um, I was in school part time and I ended up going back to school full time to finish my degree. But mm -hmm. I sort of continued doing like general IT work sort of all over the all over the map. Um, and that was very much where I sort of cut my teeth in early, like incident response stuff. Mm. Um, you know, a, a friend's website would get broken. This is, this is the era of like PHP web forums and that kind of thing. <laughs> so learning to do a little bit of incident response on that kind of thing. Um, and ultimately ended up finishing my degree in 2011. Um, and I'd been recruited to go work. At, well, I, I interviewed at a couple of places towards the end of university and ended up going to work uh, in Seattle um, at Microsoft on the uh, the Patch Tuesday team. So, um, and it, sort of in the middle of there, I spent a, about a year and a half at Message Labs, which got acquired by Symantec. So that was the other sort of like early career piece was um, learning a little bit of malware analysis, um, sort of cutting my teeth on the, the antivirus world. Um, and this was, Message Labs was like a really fascinating company because it was um, in many ways, they and Salesforce were sort of co-inventing software as a service, right? Mm. We used to like actually run servers on-prem and had like mail email servers in our offices. <laughs> what was like, what, what was with that? Why would we ever have done that? Anyway, like Message Labs invented security SaaS while Salesforce was inventing like SaaS and more for more sort of broad business use case. And we got bought on the message lab side, we got bought by Symantec. Um, so that was a super interesting, like early startup to big company experience. Um, ultimately finished up my time at message labs, went back to school full time, one last time, get that degree finished up, <laughs> just like total slog through it. It was miserable. <laughs> got the degree that let me get the visa to go live in the mm. States. Um, so I went down to work at Microsoft in Redmond, um, which is honestly just one of the most interesting places uh, to be security wise. If you, you think about the sort of like scope and impact of the security work that you do, being on the, the sort of patch Tuesday team, incident, doing incident response at Microsoft, it doesn't really get much more high impact than that when it comes to like on-prem software, things like Windows and Microsoft Office. Um, so it was, you know, I had an incredibly good fortune to have connected with that team and gotten recruited for that job early in my career because it was, it was such a fascinating role in terms of interacting with the researcher community while also having to, you know, communicate the severity of technical issues to various stakeholders within the organization who are maybe like, oh, well, this security bug, it's not that bad versus like <laughs> they actually get like, oh, yeah, this is this is some critical stuff that could like knock over the Internet. So we should act like uh, with an appropriate degree of things are on fire. <laughs> and how did that maybe influence your perspective on security in an organization? Right. Obviously, that's a very fortunate experience to have other executives and kind of business unit owners understand the value of security and, and the importance of it. How has that maybe changed your perspective in working with other organizations and saying, look, it might seem impossible, but certainly some organizations have accomplished it. 
I think it really impressed upon me how important it is to have sort of a dual perspective. You absolutely have to have the sort of technical chops and the technical understanding of the different security issues that you're addressing, whether it's understanding the um, the functionality of a particular bug or class of security issues. Um, but you also have to understand the sort of organizational dynamics at play. I think often of Kristen Paget's um, talk at Black Hat, I'm going to forget what year it was, it was 2013 or so, but it was um, her NDA from the Vista pen test had expired. And she gave this incredible talk of like, here's all the stuff that I remember now that my NDA is expired. Hmm. Um, and there was this one bit where she talks about interviewing a particular team. I think it was like a file systems team. Um, and they ended up, you know, they had more, they couldn't literally review every single line of code. That was actually impossible given right. like the time and resource, like time and personnel constraints. So they ended up needing to figure out how to like interview people um, and sort of get that like spidey sense of, oh man, I bet there's more security bugs if we dig in here based on how <laughs> the humans were reacting to questions about like the security steps that they'd taken. And that was just such a like formative lesson in my, in my career in terms of being able to like identify organizational patterns that tend to correlate with security issues. Um, whether it's that people don't describe the systems that they're operating with confidence, whether mm -hmm. it's that you you notice that people are particular kinds of stressed. And it's so funny sort of talking about this in a, in a world where like, I haven't seen my coworkers in a year plus because <laughs> I'm on the other coast now. And like, we, we don't actually have these conversations in person anymore. But um, I think in, in the previous, previous lives we all had, so much of these conversations really had to do with that, like, human factors and interpersonal stuff, the sort of body language, like what is the, it sounds almost corny to say, but like, what is the body language that tells you that if you dig in a little bit on a particular code base, you're going to find some skeletons buried. Hmm. Yeah. Completely agree with the kind of philosophy there, right? That there's certain indicators that can give you an understanding of maybe what the security of an application or, or team might be without actually reviewing the security of the system itself. Uh, but I'm curious, right? One of the challenges that then comes along with that is everyone being guarded when they're mm -hmm. talking to security folks because they feel like they have to be on defense and making sure that they're not exposing any of those potential weaknesses just in their interaction. How do you balance that desire to find these different issues that might be lying within teams without feeling like uh, without feeling like you're persecuting or investigating every single individual that you're speaking with? That's such a good question. And I think, you know, the, the story, like um, Kristen Padgett's story of the Vista pen test, she was an external contractor and that's a very different experience from when you are the, the sort of internal security resource. Um, and this was something that um, down the road when I worked at Slack, um, I was the third security hire at Slack, helped build out the security mm -hmm. team there and building that culture of trust and again coming back to that like spidey sense cultivating trust within the organization so that if someone on like the devops team or the ios team or whatever it is if their spidey sense goes off of like hey i have got a bad feeling i mean it's like classic like i've got a bad feeling about this <laughs> um you know, their spidey sense goes off that they come to the security team that they, you know, they raise the flag, they say like, hey, I've got a concern about the security of this system. 
Um, and that was something that I think we actually did a really good job at at Slack. And it came down to from the very first day as a new hire employee, um, you had your like, welcome to Slack onboarding meeting. And then the second meeting you had was a talk with someone from the security team about, mm-hmm. you know, we at the way we sort of articulated at the time was keeping people's data safe is, is like a company critical function. And we need everybody to be on board so that we can do this together. Um, all of you have the responsibility of like, if that spidey sense comes off, goes off, like pop into the security channel or literally physically walk over to the security team when that was a thing one could do. And, you know, we, we're never going to tell you like, oh my God, why are you worried about that? That's so dumb. Like you can't have that sort of like dismissive gotcha culture. Right. You have to build this like warmth and um, rapport with the broader organization. Um, and I think that's such a like security teams get a reputation for being like the department of no. And <laughs> if you can get away from that and be the department of like reassurance, it's like, a, it's just a totally, totally different dynamic. Right. No, I think that's an important point is you keep using the term spidey sense, right? And it's not just <laughs> about having, favorite, uh, yeah, yeah. it's not just about having the security team with a spidey sense, but instilling that idea in the rest of the organization. And then to your point, having the collaborative culture where the rest of the, the team and, and organization understands the value of security and is willing to work with security to get those issues resolved. Uh, and this is such an important and constant problem in security as a whole. Uh, you've been very fortunate to work in a lot of cutting edge tech companies, right? Microsoft, Heroku, Slack, Message Labs. Um, these are a lot of companies that are much more on the forefront, especially in the mm-hmm. kind of more legacy organizations and these longer standing businesses. There's more of that culture of no that you've described. Yeah. And so there's a lot of work for leaders trying to kind of reverse that long standing perception of a security team. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's something that like, I've seen it change in organizations relatively quickly, um, but it really comes down to having, having the air cover from management to say like, Hey, you know, this, this is critical to our business. This is something that we, we need to, to value and support. Um, And with that proper air cover, that culture can shift really quickly. Um, but without that air cover and man, the number of times I've had conversations like this with people who are like, should I leave my organization? Like they just, they don't seem to get it. Like if you don't have that air cover from an organization, you're tilting at windmills. You know, if, if the, if the leadership isn't taking security seriously, like you don't have to fight that fight on your own. You can go fight that fight somewhere where they actually like value security. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, no question. So let's get back to kind of your story here, right? Mm -hmm, For sure. Like we just talked about, there are these different tech companies that you kind of bounced between gaining valuable experience at each one, understanding how these different organizations operate and emphasize security. Then in 2017, you actually ended up joining the the ACLU for a year or so. And we'll get to Tall Poppy in a second and why I think maybe this all ties together. But I'm curious, how did the ACLU... And that experience may influence your professional desires from like a social impact standpoint. Yeah. So historically, I've very much been of the, um, there's a sort of philosophy of having an impact on the world, which is 
that you can either go work directly on the issues that you care about, um, or you can find a role that has the most sort of economic leverage and then use the financial means you gain via like working in a tech job to support the causes you care about in the world. Sure. And up until 20, 2016, 2017, I was very much like, I'm going to make some tech money and I'm going to donate to support causes that I, that I think and like let hmm. the experts do their job. I'm you know not an expert at changing the world. I'm an expert at computers. So why don't I stick with the computers? But there was a unique opportunity that arose um, sort of at the end of 2016, which was that there was a fairly controversial election in the States. And uh, I was, was left at a bit of a, um, a junction in my own sort of life and career. And I basically was like, do I move back to Canada or do I do something else that like puts me more sort of on the front lines? Hmm. Um, and I had the opportunity to interview at the ACLU for this um, fellowship role. Uh, there's a super interesting like set of roles within policy and government governance. Um, this, this type of role is only about 10 years old. We've only had people doing this work for about a decade as an entire industry, which is one of the things I love about security is we're, we're literally, and technology in general, we're, we're just, we're inventing the future like bit by bit. So <laughs> a policy technologist, the, the work that I was doing at the ACLU is basically you take someone who has deep technical experience, typically from working in industry, but some people come to this path via academia. So deep technical experience and then you look at with this technology background, what is the lens that I can apply to um, how governments and institutions run? Um, and in the case of the ACLU, I was part of the Speech Privacy and Technology Project, um, which is a group within the ACLU that's uh, whose main concern is, um, in addition to sort of free speech rights, it's what are the like privacy and surveillance implications of technology, whether it's in the mm. private sector or in the government. Um, and my role within that group was basically, I, I like to sort of jokingly say it was, I'd explain computers to the lawyers so that they could sue the government to defend civil rights. Um, but that's actually like a pretty accurate, like whether it was revising, um, reviewing and revising uh, legal briefs or um, digging into the, the sort of technical aspects of legal arguments. Um, I was working really closely with the legal team um, to really thoroughly understand the legal and policy implications of technological change. Um, and it was a super, super fascinating role, um, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful to have had the, the chance to, to work at the ACLU. Um, ultimately, I, you know, it was a one-year fellowship. Um, I decided to, to move on at the end of the fellowship, uh, and the sort of the, the stars had aligned that the time was right for me to start this company that I'd, I'd wanted to start for a number of years. Um, but it really set me up uh, having this perspective of how sort of governance and laws are made and policy decisions are made around technology. Um, and I like, I wouldn't trade that having had that experience for the world. Um, and there's, we should put it in the show notes, but um, Bruce Schneier actually maintains a wonderful website about being a policy technologist, like what this type of role is. Um, and I totally blank on the URL, but I'll, I'll make sure that you have it for the show notes. Yeah. We'll uh, find it and, and get it posted there. Yeah, and but this about this whole sort of like as as folks are thinking about you know what their next role is, um, whether there's an impact that they can have beyond just like you know configuring servers and uh, and <laughs> sure. pushing bits around, um, in terms of the the different organizations that need people with 
strong, strong, strong technology and industry backgrounds to influence the future of policy. Um, there's a wonderful program called uh, the Tech Congress Fellows, where every year they bring on about a dozen people from industry and academia to actually go work in congressional offices, senators' offices, and various like units of the government, such as the General Services Administration. And those folks bring that industry expertise into like legal and policy um, decision making. Uh, and depending on when this episode goes out, the application may still be open. So exciting <laughs> to, uh, but they, I think they do one or two cycles a year. Um, and a, a number of my friends have gone through that program and it's just a really fantastic opportunity for folks to have influence at the highest levels of American government. Perfect. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the the story just tying together those different aspects, right? You mentioned the initial focus on impact through economics and then the transition to I guess, impact more directly through your job. And mm-hmm. it's a very interesting kind of segue in terms of skill sets, right? Because for the ACLU job, obviously you need to have some sort of cybersecurity context and industry expertise. But like you said, it's very different than actually configuring servers or responding to a security incident and very different skill sets that come along with each of those roles. For sure, uh, so for sure. pivot this into tall poppy for me, right? You founded Tall Poppy in 2018. The general idea is you're helping protect employees from online harassment. I'll let you expand on that for me in a second. This very clearly has a social impact feel to it. And it's very different than a traditional cybersecurity company, which is part of the reason I I found this so fascinating and and wanted to make sure I had the chance to, to speak with you about it. How did this idea actually arise? And what was it that caused you to pursue this specific vein of the cybersecurity space? Yeah, super great question. So in addition to my sort of like relatively standard cybersecurity career working at big tech companies with a small detour into sort of policy technology, um, in my my evenings and weekends, I had done a lot of work around diversity and inclusion um, in tech in general, but in particular around open source, um, free software, uh, massive peer communities such as Wikipedia um, and the hackerspaces world. Uh, I helped found a hackerspace in Toronto and later helped found one in Seattle um, and really was involved in that sort of like nerd culture, like making nerd culture and geek culture safer for women and other underrepresented people kind of thing. And as as almost like a natural consequence of that work, um, I had ended up helping a lot of people sort of in the combination of being a security person plus having this interest in inclusion stuff um i became this sort of weird one woman helpline for the internet of people that were dealing with like trolls and stalkers and internet neo-nazis and all sorts of other like Mm -hmm. miscreants um and had had thought for a long time like man it would be cool if there was an organization that could do this um and could identify like ways of scaling up this work so it's not literally just me getting on the phone with people. Um, and I'm really fortunate that I, I had the opportunity to, to start that organization. Um, in 2018, I got my green card um, towards the end of my time at the ACLU um, and was able to, as soon as I left the ACLU, start the company um, and really start to identify ways of scaling up the work of protecting people from online harassment. Um, now, there's a couple of different when it when when we talk about protecting people from online harassment, right. there's there's sort of three different things involved. One of them is 
people get nasty messages, threatening messages, they, they get content sent to them. Um, and the unfortunate reality is that as a third party, there's a limit to sort of what, you know, I, I'm not running Twitter or Facebook. <laughs> it's probably for the best. I, I don't think I'd be very good at it. Um, I'm not running those things. So I can't, you know, stop people from yelling at you on Twitter or Facebook, right? Like that's actually just out of my control. Um, and there are opportunities to make like better clients for these apps and, and you know, change how the sort of algorithms work to uh, make it so that like harassing people is less like algorithmically satisfying to, to right. adversaries and that kind of thing. Some of those things need to be done by the companies. Some of those there are, is the opportunity to build sort of third-party clients. Um, Tracy Chu's block party product is a good example of that, where it helps mm. manage the like incoming nasty messages that you get. But the other two places are really where we've focused. Um, and that's one, the privacy question. What is the data that's out there about you that an adversary might be like, oh, I want to go after Kyle. I'm going to like Google him and figure out his home address and then like non-consensually send you a bunch of pizza, right? Like <laughs> these very sort of in-person, like um, bringing the internet into the quote unquote real world. Although I'll argue that it's all been the real world for a really long time, metaverse and all. <laughs> um, so there's that sort of like, what is, what is your public footprint? What is there out there about you on the internet? And then the other piece of it is what is the security of your personal cyber infrastructure, your personal technical infrastructure, your personal Gmail account, or whatever email service you use, all of your personal social media, all the way down to like your actual laptops and phones and other devices. Um, and the ways that we see online harassment escalate are really, there's like the nasty messages and then there's the privacy violations and then there's the account hacking. And mm. those latter two are where we've chosen to focus as an organization. So we've built an app that walks people through taking proactive steps to improve their sort of personal data footprint, what is out there about them on the internet, as well as their personal cybersecurity posture. I'm sure you've done a zillion different like uh, security awareness trainings at jobs where it's like, don't <laughs> click on links. Like here's how to recognize phishing, like don't open attachments. And those are not like, they, they don't really translate to like your personal life. Cause you got to open attachments when your vet sends you a PDF bill or whatever it is. Right. Like it's sure. part of our, our lives to actually like use technologies. So understanding what are the ways that we can just like delete entire categories of concern, whether it's getting people to use hardware security keys so that they don't need to worry about phishing, whether it's getting folks to use the preview function in Gmail rather than opening attachments, identifying those opportunities to just like eliminate classes of security issues. Um, and then we've built like a, a training curriculum and uh, an app that, that walks people through these steps in a way that's much more sort of conversational rather than like a one-off digital security training that sort of dumps a bunch of information on them that they're never going to remember. So that's, that is our approach. Um, we work with companies like uh, a couple of the major tech platforms, movie studios, a healthcare company, a um, bunch of video game studios. Uh, and our focus is really in intervening so that employees have the tools to protect themselves in their personal capacity. Um, and we also provide that incident response support so that if an indiv individual mm -hmm. does get targeted, we're there to get on the phone with them, offer them some reassurance and moral support, but also that sort of technical, like, hey, like, let's walk through the app together. Let's make sure you've got a password manager set up, two-factor authentication, 
you know, which accounts are you the most concerned about? Let's make sure you understand how to like correctly configure those. Um, because again, like I'm not running Twitter, I'm not running Facebook. I can't <laughs> stop the yelling, but there are interventions that we can do to prevent it from escalating to the kinds of things that cause long-term harm in people's lives. Interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a great, very comprehensive overview of kind of the the approach as well as how exactly tall poppy is going about this and i mean maybe walk me through just the the details of the application itself and a bit a bit further right so yeah for sure my understanding is you're building some sort of web app that users can go ahead and log into and they have something like a checklist of implement a password manager implement multi-factor authentication make sure you're following so and so password requirement best practices is that basically the right track so far? And I know you mentioned the incident response piece as well, but kind of the bulk of it is around this technology platform, which is targeted at personal security for online harassment use cases. Yeah, I think you you summarized it really well. I think the the specific like additional piece um, that we really specialize in that, that's different from other sort of security awareness training tools mm-hmm. um, and, and personal security products is we we really focus on providing that like expert guidance for specific types of consumer accounts. So mm. it's not just like, hey, you should use a password manager. It's okay, so you use Twitter. Here's the specific way we recommend Twitter, recommend configuring your Twitter account to be resistant to the kinds of attacks we see in harassment oh, situations. And it's broadly applicable beyond just, you know, when, what do we mean when we say online harassment? It ends up being a pretty broad subset of consumer cybersecurity threats, ranging from, I'm sure you've had family members have their like Facebook account compromised. And then they're like, yeah. I'm in London. Will you send me money for a plane ticket? <laughs> that, that kind of like scamming kind of stuff. Um a lot of the same stuff that protects you from like internet neo-Nazis or stalkers also protects you from that kind of more casual scamming. Um, and really identifying, I think it's it's part of this big shift um, that I think is the, the sort of core of our like, value proposition. Um, when we think about consumer cybersecurity historically, we think of like antivirus and maybe VPNs come up um, and then password managers, right? There's so the, the sort of antivirus and VPN is very like network layer focused and operating system, but the kinds of mass online attacks we're seeing today, partly because the like browsers are so much more hardened, um, we're not seeing those same like browser exploit leads to dropper, leads to device compromise, leads to some sort of ongoing exploitation. We're just seeing account takeovers. It's all it's all account mm-hmm. takeovers these days, at a consumer level. Um, and so really like identifying ways of equipping consumers to be safer from account takeovers, that is our, that's our like big picture of the future is like, how do we, how do we prevent, you know, every single security breach turning into uh, an endless series of account takeovers targeting other things via password reuse. Um, mm-hmm. And so our, our initial lens is that online harassment piece. But we think this is part of like a much bigger conversation around the the sort of future of account security um, that I think is really just starting. Yeah, and certainly there's a lot of conversation right now about the use of passwords in general and uh, Mm -hmm. how that's going to to change over time. But I just wanted to briefly touch on, it, it sounds like the, you mentioned specific configurations for Twitter. It's almost like extending the CIS benchmark model 
for enterprise technology, like a cloud provider, and then applying that to like technology that's it. actually used by the, the personal consumer. I've never consumer. thought of that analogy, but it's so, it's such like the perfect, like we don't have, we don't all have to reinvent the real, the wheel. Right. And the idea that we're going to teach people sort of, again, there's a lot of these like two or three hour personal security workshops that people deliver to organizations. Right. And I think what, what people really need is that more sort of ongoing support. You know, our vision is really that you know when Instagram updates their security settings so that you can add app-based two-factor authentication, you get a notification from the Tall Poppy app saying like, hey, you know, we know you use Instagram because you've told us previously they just mm-hmm. updated some of their security settings. You should go and change those. Um, and being that sort of trusted advisor um, for the changing personal security landscape. Right now, like to actually be an expert in personal cybersecurity, you have to pay attention to so many different, you have to pay attention to as many different news sources as there are different social platforms, right? (laughs) And for, you know, particularly, perhaps like our parents are mainly only using Facebook, but many folks of a younger generation are on half a dozen or even a dozen different main platforms on a day-to-day basis. Um, and keeping track of the the sort of security changes on all of those is just not not feasible. And you multiply that with folks being, whether they're like influencers or otherwise sort of high profile, mm-hmm. that puts them under under fire in many ways. Um, and you have all of these folks who have the sort of consequences of celebrity without the like support system that celebrities typically have around mm-hmm. having like assistance and a security team. And so being that sort of like high quality expert security team, but that's available to everyone, that's that's the long-term vision of, of what we're building. Yeah. So, I mean, walk me through that in a bit more detail, because that was one of my first thoughts when I started learning more about Tall Poppy is this could really apply to any individual and seems more focused on individuals as opposed to enterprise. But my understanding is you're mostly targeting enterprise customers, which then serves as kind of a jumping off point for them to provide that service or application out to their organization. And I totally see the logic behind that as well, right? I know you talk about the productivity decreases that come with any sort of online harassment and an organization certainly wants to look out for their employees, but Mm -hmm. why did you decide to pursue that enterprise model as opposed to going direct to consumer? It's a really good question. And I think the the core reasoning there was we didn't know what this would look like at the start. Um, Mm. We had an idea that there was uh, an alignment of interests between companies and their employees in protecting those employees from threats coming from outside of the company. One thing we, we were very clear that we were steering away from, from the start was we're not, our focus is very much not like employees harassing each other at work as much as that like definitely does happen. And is a major concern, um, our, our goal from the start was identifying like, hey, your employees are in the public eye for one reason or another related to, the, to your work. And you as an employer have some duty of care to protect those employees. So there, that alignment of incentives meant that we could find budget within these organizations to, <laughs> to make this work happen. Um, and I think the, the sort of, as we figure out what a consumer version of the product looks like, one of the sort of things we're in the process of figuring out right now is, does it look much more like a sort of credit karma model where it's 
data and recommendations based? Or is it more of like the LifeLock model where it's a subscription service? Or is there something in the middle? Um, and that's that's some that's work that we're actively doing right now um, to figure out the, the direction of the consumer version of the product. Um, so definitely stay tuned as uh, there'll, there'll <laughs> be some news in, I think, the next sort of next quarter timeframe on that front as we're just figuring that stuff out. Yeah. And to your credit as well, right? It's not like you're floundering trying to find product market fit in the enterprise space, you already mentioned the kind of several big name customers uh, that your team is working with. So clearly there is a market in the enterprise space. Uh, and to your point, there's just this opportunity to kind of grow in the direct to consumer mm-hmm. market and figure out yeah. how to how to make it work for influencers and all these different celebrity types that receive that increased harassment. So, uh, I mean, there's one more piece that I want to touch on the, the enterprise side as well, right? Mm-hmm. Normally, sure. when we talk to a security company, the buyer is going to be pretty straightforward. It's going to be the chief information security officer in a bigger organization. It might be a bit more focused on a specific security team in a smaller organization. Maybe they don't have a CISO yet, and maybe it's the CIO, Mm -hmm. right? Fairly straightforward. With Tall Poppy, I can't imagine this is top of mind for a lot of CISOs. Who is the key buyer? Is it the CISO? Is it someone in HR? What does that actually look like? Yeah, so it somewhat for us so far, it has somewhat depended on, um, frankly, who is experiencing being targeted within an organization. Um, a fairly common sales play for us is that an executive actually gets targeted. Um, we do some work with them on sort of a concierge basis that we have a, a standardized concierge process that that we can do for very sort of high touch um, situations, and then they're like, oh wow there's this whole space of risk that I hadn't considered as an or at an organizational level. Let's, let's roll the like app based version out to the whole company. Um, so that's, that's been one of the, one of the styles of interactions we've had. Um, the other, uh, so there have been a number of situations where the, the CISO is in fact the buyer. Um, mm. I think as folks are um, running into these kinds of issues um, among their employees, the security team is often the first team that where there's contact of like, hey, mm, you know, sure. Bob in accounting just had this like nasty breakup and they're dealing with like a stocking situation. Is there anything we can do to help? We don't actually know how to handle this. So they look out, they look, they, they seek out appropriate expertise. Um, and the other place that we often, so the very short, <laughs> rather than me rambling on, um, the it's the CISO, it's HR, it's legal, um, and sometimes, oddly enough, it's marketing. Um, mm-hmm. Because there is sort of a, a publicness to many of the attacks and situations that we deal with, um, sometimes the, the marketing or PR communications folks will end up being the buyer because they recognize that one of the consequences of putting your employees in the public spotlight um, is that some of them, unfortunately, particularly people who are women, people of color, um, LGBTQ folks, or people with disabilities, will disproportionately get targeted. So if you want to be asking your employees to like stick their necks out on behalf of the organization, it's really important to have that support in place. Um, and that's where often we'll end up engaging with like on the comms side. Um, even though we're doing this like very technical work of getting people to use password managers and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. All over the map. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of interesting to think about that diversity in terms of the buyer, 
and mm-hmm. compare that to the value to an individual, right? We've talked a lot already about how there's specific use to an individual. And I think that makes it almost more relatable for different individuals in an organization. Whereas with like a vulnerability management automation yeah, software, for example, there's often a much more clear cut buyer. And I, you know, I think it was definitely something where my initial hypothesis going in was, oh yeah, this is clearly going to be like an employee benefit. HR is going to be the buyer. Um, but it, it really, we, we are very much in the early days of building out this, this vertical. Um, so I, I try to not, I don't stress too much about, about <laughs> there being this like variety among the buyers because right. fundamentally enterprise sales is enterprise sales, even if the buyer is <laughs> a little different sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about next steps already. You mentioned this uh, additional investment and investigation into the direct-to-consumer market. What else is on the roadmap for Tall Poppy looking ahead? Yeah, so we're just, we're wrapping up uh, a fundraise. Um, We just raised a a small bridge round. Um, And with that, continuing the sort of enterprise go-to-market while also engaging in some research around what the what the right version of a consumer product is going to look like. Um, And that's really, that's my roadmap for the, for the next little bit is um, continuing on the sort of enterprise sales side. Um, I'm really excited to be hiring my first salesperson um, in Mm. the near, near future. Um, just finalizing the JD for that and uh, really starting to, to scale up the team as we, as we onboard more large customers. Awesome. Well, I think you already touched on it. The ceremonial last question are you looking for investment or hiring? You just raised a bridge round and you're releasing a job description shortly for any interested sales folks. They can go ahead and, and find you and, and reach out. Any other positions in particular you want to highlight for listeners? Yeah, we're, we'll definitely have additional engineering um, and sort of security analyst positions um, coming up. Uh, we, we're all always happy to hear from folks, um, even if there isn't a position posted, careers at tallpoppy.com goes to my and my co-founder's email. Um, and uh, we've actually, we made some really good hires over the years, uh, just from folks that have reached out to us proactively. So that's, we're, we're really fortunate that folks are really interested in, in working on this. Um, and down the road, I'm always interested in connecting with uh, with investors that are that are interested in this sort of hybrid of future of work, um, cybersecurity, um, with this like little bit of extra diversity and inclusion sauce on the side, um, and where we're operating on both this B2B and in the future going to the consumer market as well. So yeah, perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your story uh, and just the the journey behind Tall Poppy and, and your career. I think it's, again, a very admirable mission in trying to weave in this social impact piece within the broader cybersecurity space. And I'm excited to see how it progresses. Awesome. Thanks again so much for the, the opportunity to chat. I uh, really, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, looking forward to listening to more interviews on your show. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.